Be good. <laughs> Hola amigos, welcome to the Monkey Tooth Podcast. This is Andrew. I'm with my wife Tiffany and our little dog Pele in El Salvador. We are by the beach. You may or may not hear the ocean in the background or some crickets. Uh, we're very fortunate people for a lot of reasons, um, not the least of which is the fact that we're at the beach and the fact that we get to talk to the people that we get to talk to and hang out with, uh, including our guest today, Sister Peggy O'Neill, who we met in a little town called Toto, which was um, beautiful and culturally interesting and uh, the home of Sister Peggy and her life's work, I would say. Uh, in particular, this uh, the place where we stayed, Centro Arte por la Paz. It is a beautiful, project that she's going to tell you about much more eloquently than I can. And uh, I'm going to tell you a little bit more about her. But first, I want to dedicate this episode to two people. One, uh, first and foremost, my mother, Janine. My mom is uh, a kindred spirit to the woman you're about to hear from. Someone who has dedicated their lives to I don't know, alleviating suffering whenever possible, or, or just at least being of comfort to those who are suffering. Uh, the poor, the sick, the dying, you name it. The, my mom and this woman are of uh, a kindred kindred heart. I hope someday they get to meet. Um, and secondly, I want to dedicate this to our pal John Haley in Memphis, Tennessee. John brought up, he was the first one to bring up the uh, the Civil War which in, in El Salvador, which we were just barely, barely aware of through reading our travel guide of all things. Uh, John is a, is very well read on the subject. Um, and uh, yeah, I know he's got a great interest in this sort of thing. And when we met Peggy, Sister Peggy, we knew we wanted to talk to, uh, to her and uh, thought of John almost the whole time. I didn't get to ask Peggy a whole lot of questions. She, uh, you'll see, uh, Sister Peggy, we just opened up the door and she had things to say and her stories are amazing and I did not want to interrupt very much at all. So this is uh, very, very little of me, which I really like. <laughs> I like podcasts where it's very little me. At this moment, it's been entirely me and I'd like to change that pronto immediato. So let me tell you a little bit about Sister Peggy and then I'll shut it down and you can get on to listening to what she has to say. Sister Peggy has been in El Salvador for about 35 years working with the poor uh, as an educator, as a friend, as just a, uh, a confidant and uh, someone who loves people as a vocation. Uh, her, her time there, I mean, she went to El Salvador during the Civil War, which uh, is brave and compassionate and um, so many things that I admire and have never done in my life. It, uh, she's a feminist. She is a, uh, a fabulous educator, a healer, advocate for peace and for uh, solidarity and 
so many wonderful things. And it was our pleasure to get to meet her. And it, it turns out I didn't ask her about this in the podcast that she was uh, a friend and contemporary of the Berrigan brothers. Uh, if you just want to Google Father Berrigan, you will see uh, Dan and Philip Berrigan, I think were their first names. Really, really interesting guys who were of the same mind as uh, Peggy working for peace and, and a better understanding of our world. Um, fascinating characters. Anyway, of course she would be friends with them because she is awesome. Anyhow, uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's all I'm going to say about Peggy because she'll tell you more about herself in a much more eloquent way. I hope you're enjoying this show. It is absolutely free as always, but of course now we do not ask for any money whatsoever because, I don't know, we don't want to. We want to just do this for free. If you do have money that's just burning a hole in your pocket, look up Sister Peggy's organization. Go to our website. Click a link uh, on, on her uh, episode page and, uh, and go to her foundation or her, uh, her project and, and give her some money because, man, she's doing great stuff and could use the help. Uh, oh, yeah, the music. If you're digging the music on the show, as always, you can go to our website and find out what the names of the songs were. Um, yeah, I used, I could, I could not find El Salvadorian music that I wanted to use for this episode. Just, to, I couldn't find something that fit right, either thematically or atmospherically or both. So I used Latin music that is not from El Salvador. I just want you to know that I did that on purpose. <laughs> um, yeah, I used some Cuban music and a couple other things that are not not El Salvadorian, but I uh, felt like they fit atmospherically and thematically, so that's that's what I used here. Uh, okay, if you got questions, send them to mtp.dog forward slash contact. Let us know what you think. I hope you're doing fun and interesting things out there. Until next time, enjoy this episode with our pal, Sister Peggy. Right away, you struck me as someone who has had a very interesting life, uh, and you're clearly working on a very interesting project. So there's three things very specifically I want to talk to you about. Okay. First, um, I w- I'd like it if you could explain what this this sure. is. Secondly, um, uh, I don't know that a lot of people, well, I know that many, many people in the U.S. and around the world don't know anything about the El Salvadorian Civil War. And three, I would imagine the great majority of the world doesn't know anything about you, which is a fascinating subject. So, those three things. Okay. This place, the war, and In you. 20 minutes or less. <laughs> no, 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 no. We've got lots of time. Yeah. But so, so tell, if you wouldn't mind, just sure. explain what uh, we're in the Center for Peace, right? How do you say right. it in Espanol? Centro Arte para la Paz. Um, it's healing space that um, actually about 12 years ago, I've been in El Salvador for 33, so this clearly uh, is not uh, my only job. But um, I came during the war, and I can talk a little bit about that. I can talk a little bit about post-war, post-peace accords, and the frantic joy, rebuilding, energy, optimism, and trauma that's carried through all what I just mentioned. And um, so let's begin. I'm in Centro Arte para la Paz, a peace center, using the arts as the vehicle to arrive at personal peace and 
if you touch your own memories with tenderness, I have a feeling that you'll begin to touch everything with more tenderness. And so um, we had neglected. We were, uh, in the beginning, three Catholic sisters here. Then we went to four post-war, and five, another one came. But I'm the only one left, and uh, I happened to be the oldest when I came. Um, I was an old lady, but I still had my period, so I felt I was still uh, kind of together. <laughs> and, um, but I, I came here at 48. I had had a career as a professor of theology. My PhD is in religion from NYU. And before that, a lot of Catholic universities like Marquette with the Jesuits and stuff like that. But I, um, you're sitting in the urban section of Suchitoto, about an hour out of the capital. There's no traffic. And um, this was an area where hacienda owners uh, lived. They also had a house probably in the capital. They had a house probably in Miami or Madrid. <clears throat> and they had a house out, or an area, out where the haciendas were. And Suchitoto is one of the largest cities geographically, or territorially, I should say, uh, in the in the country, and um, it was all hacienda land. Now we have post-war, 86 rural communities. 65 percent of the people of Suchitoto live on what were the hacienda lands. Okay. So Suchitoto was an area where there was a lot of money, and I do begin with that because you can see we have an 1840 chapel. A family wanted their private chapel in their barrio or neighborhood, so they built a chapel. I don't know how long it took. Uh, it's not tiny, as you notice, and, um, but it's old. And um, a school came here in 1914, and uh, four Dominican sisters came because there was a land swap. The bishop at the time wanted land uh, that the sisters had to build a church and parish and outside the capital. So he said, let's do a land swap. He gave them the land surrounding this chapel and the chapel. <clears throat> so they built a school in 1914, <clears throat> excuse me, and it functioned well. Public school, the schools are public unless they're declared private, and um, then you have to pay a lot of money to attend. They're really private, private. So <clears throat> this school was first for girls. Only girls came. And um, they, they just left a wonderful spirit here. One morning in 1980, the sisters walked out to open the gate here, and there were mutilated bodies at the entrance to the school. So that was their death threat. You know, I was born in Jersey City, New Jersey, and for me, death threats were kind of like anonymous phone calls, maybe like I saw in movies or notes or something as harsh as that I never dreamt could be a death threat. But they closed the school in nine hours the, that day, that very day, to protect themselves and the, the children. By then it was boys and girls. The last two or three years they took in young boys. And uh, they got out of the, the town in the back of a bread truck and never came back. And who was threatened? <clears throat> the military. The government. 
<coughs> the government forces, and they wanted everybody out of this area. And the sisters were doing more than teaching arithmetic and spelling. They were talking about values and justice. And, and so they probably did um, talk about the rights of those um, workers on the haciendas, which, let's face it, they were economically enslaved by the landowners. Um, not enchained, but economically enchained. And, um, however, uh, so they left and never came back for 25 years. So <clears throat> this was abandoned for 25 years, 26 really. And I live across the street. We had rented because there was no church property uh, that wasn't damaged for us to be able to live in it. So we um, rented a little house here, and I still am renting the same house for 30, 33 years, 34. And so anyway, uh, if we looked over at it for, for just so long. And uh, only 12 years ago, as I said, my latest passion became thinking about young people who really suffered war trauma even though they didn't live in the war or during the war. Um, trauma comes through mother's milk, but it also comes from the stories that surround you as children. And um, there was no why was there a war ever expressed. Parents didn't speak philosophically about the war. They spoke mostly uh, and initially about the losses. Uh, they did speak about the gains, and they did find a few to speak about with joy, like the right to own land, um, uh, like, um, you know, uh, the right to, to really continue to ask for better education, health, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, nothing came quickly, but they were aware that they did have paths to continue walking on. So anyway, um, we realized 12 years ago, myself and one other sister, uh, we realized that we had, you know, really worked with the women at first because they held the world together during the war. And we had permission to really speak more with the women. Uh, and under the guise of uh, we were going to talk with the catechists, uh, we would go to these new founded uh, communities with the help of international um, uh, presence, like us, uh, people that came from Mesa Grande in Honduras. They had been formal UN refugee camps. The first batch to come out, there were three groups, about 2,000 families. Uh, they went to, to Copapayo, which is our area, our department, Chalatenango, and Santa Marta Cabanas, uh, three states. And um, so we would need permission because the military held this town. And the military held the town because there's a series of hills, Wasapa, uh, they're dormant volcanoes for centuries. And that was a straight staging ground for the guerrilla forces closest to the capital. So this town was, um, filled with, at minimum, 400 of the armed forces and um, numbers of uh, rebel forces on Wasapa. And so it was very active during the war. Bombs all the time, enfrentamientos, ambushes at night. The rebels would come down, the military would go up, um, you would wake up in the morning and there were just bullets all over the street. and. 
Um, but like everything, you kind of get used to how to manage those kinds of sounds. Um, I could tell how far away the bombs were on Wasapa just by the sounds, you know. Um, the people could tell you what the name of the gun was just by the sound. You be, and the dogs never barked. That was another thing. They knew when um, they should make no sounds. Um, it's, it's just amazing. I remember one of the happiest nights post peace accords was when I heard, I, can, I tear up thinking about it, when I heard children playing on the street and laughing. Um, you know, at about this hour, because for, you know, seven years, you know, everybody had to be in the house by four o'clock. And, um, those, and I heard the sounds of birds again. Uh, there are a lot of birds here. And that is what Suchitoto means in the uh, indigenous language. Now what? Birds and flowers. The land of birds and flowers. It is a, it is a paradise. It's quite beautiful, No. And so um, we decided, um, you know, we had worked hard with the women. We, and that was one of the pluses of the war. The women weren't going to go back and just make tortillas and pupusas and sweep the floors. Um, they had held the world together, and they were ready to keep um, holding the world differently than they had um, over the years. So it was a fertile time for them. And we would go out under the guise of... Uh, religious formation and so forth, but we were dealing with women oh, who had migraine headaches, who had lost uh, children and husbands and other families and uh, uh, you know cousins. And I know one man who lost 44 people in um, you know from his family. Uh, he's still alive in the late 80s, but um, so uh, this the sense of loss and and depression, if you will. So actually, in another thing, we began to capitalize on trying to identify for them models that maybe they hadn't grown up with of women who were heroes of theirs, like the mother of Jesus. Now I'm into catechism. Um, that she was always presented to them as this tranquil, yes, I will person. You know, yes, oh God, I'll do what God wants, etc. Uh, she was never perceived to be a strong woman. It was more an obedient woman. So doing those kinds of things and then dealing with their own lives as women it really was fascinating and fun for me. Um, every, every time you speak, you're really speaking more for yourself than for anybody else to hear yourself think, saying things out loud makes you say, hmm, yeah, I believe that. Let's move closer towards it, too, you know. So, you know, we would present those characters, especially the women, so they could identify with them in a different way, justify their own earn, yearning to uh, be a more dominant figure in society, in the house, etc. So that was fun, because I was obviously a feminist, and I had been through all that myself, and... Um, but then we would get to, you know, their own bodies. Just think of these women had never seen their bodies. They never saw a mirror. I mean, you're talking about women who could never have reflected on what do I look like, that kind of thing. And then they had also, every culture has its own, um, what do I call it, like 
purity behavior. Like like we had to bathe in the public, in public. I, I had to get used to that too, right from the very beginning in the refugee camp. And I wasn't used to being uh, without anything on my breast. And um, But th that was the way you bathed here in public. And, and um, of course, I got used to that quickly. But you never really were naked um, from the waist down. Every woman had on a half slip. I mean, I have youngsters who have no idea what half slips are. They don't, when I say that in English, they look at me, you know, half slips. But there, there's a sense of purity or... Um, that and the men always had on their underpants, you know, and they'd just go in and you know whatever. But again, the, um, they they never saw their own bodies. They never really thought about their own bodies, that kind of thing. And so there was a lot of awakenings for them. That when you talk about them, they sound a little primitive because I'm talking about the 1980s. But in a sense, it's just cultural primitive, that kind of thing. And um, they would share stories. They really had maybe seven children or 10 children or 13 children already, but they weren't really sure how that all happened, even though it happened. And um, so those are the kinds of things we did. And then we continued to do that post-war, continued working with the women. We founded here, myself and one of the other sisters, the Concertación de las Mujeres. So I had, we had worked with women. Now we have the Concertación and we have the Colectiva Feminista. So that has emerged. It's evolved. Makes me thrilled. And we did a lot of working with youth. We did a lot of... Um, what we did during the war was to facilitate uh, things coming in when the war was still going on and these people returned. Um, the military checks were at least five to get into the town from the capital. So it was very difficult to get things through to the people because they came back with nothing. I thought I knew what nothing was until I saw nothing. They came back on buses from the refugee camp. And um, I mean, many children were born in the refugee camps. They had never seen a bus, never have been on a bus. and. Um, they only had one bus for X number of people, so they couldn't bring too much back with them. And um, but anyway, um, they uh, they they formed, and I was really impressed with this. They formed what they called uh, a diaconia or the diaconia, which was a, a conglomeration or a network of a couple of churches, the big Roman Catholic Church. There were, that was a predominant church then. It's still predominant, but very few-er members. Like when I came, I'm sure it was 95, 98% Roman Catholic. But there's been an influx of other kinds of Christian churches, apart from the Lutheran Church and the Episcopal Church, we call it the Anglican Church, and the Baptist Church, or a lot of small evangelical churches. And that's another whole story, but related to Reagan's, President Reagan's 1980 Latin American platform drawn up in Santa Fe, New Mexico, where the ideal for him, not for him, for him as his advisors, was to um, curtail that uh, revolutionary religion of liberation theology with other religions that were more spiritualistic. So they funded through Ford Foundation and Rockefeller Foundation um, missionaries to go 
and to proselytize so that that social action or social church behavior would, uh, they kind of war uh, churches against churches. Let's war against each other for people. So I would say probably now you're talking about only 65% of the people are still Roman Catholic. If They don't use the term Roman, but Catholic, if you will. So the churches, and I was amazed at this, they formed this diaconia to ensure that these people had a right to come back to their own country and we would supply the basic needs so that they could survive during the war in their own country. And of course, the people came back from, for two reasons. They knew they had a right to be here. They wanted to keep the movement alive. And um, they knew that, um, I just lost it, uh, watching them go by. There was a third reason. Um, but anyway, it'll come back. Well, they, had a right to be here. they had a right to be here. They wanted to keep the movement alive. And um, whatever it was, it's gone. But that's okay. It'll come back. And it's not that key. Um, but anyway, what they did was they, uh, these churches got together, and they got funds mostly from Europe. The German church gave a lot of money. The Germans uh, have to give social money and can give it outside the country as part of their taxes. And so the, the Catholic bishops here went to Germany looking for money, and it came. And the Anglicans and the Lutherans, of course, the basis in the German church too. So monies came, and a small wing of the Baptist church, Baptista Emmanuel, and they're, they're, all of those churches are still quite, uh, quite social in their behaviors here. It kind of fascinates me because um, we really facilitated all the stuff that had to get to these people um, so that they could begin to rebuild their lives. They needed to uh, get new papers. They needed to claim births here. They needed to claim deaths here. They needed to get identity cards. I mean, all the bureaucratic things you have to do when you come into a country again. Um, they needed to build houses, they needed to build roads, but they needed to plant so they could feed themselves, but they would also feed the people up there. So that's why the government wasn't happy about their coming. Um, it did mean that the movement would be helped by their presence. So we were the ones who funneled and kept track of all that stuff coming in. And as I said, there were times we had to bring in the, the health care materials, um, you know, that was another thing. These churches clearly had their own, um, their own church stuff. The way they prayed was a little different. The way we sing is a little different and all that. But, um, like, um, you had to take care of construction. You had to take care of pastoral work. You had to build schools. You had to... Uh, there were just so many things to do, and they divided it all up. Like, they didn't say, well, how many Catholics live in this community? They all were Catholic, but that didn't mean the Lutheran Church wasn't going to take them on. Uh, they, and they didn't say, well, you can't do that. You can only go find Luther. I mean, it was just this marvelous way of extending, and the, the Lutheran Church is still closer to those communities that they started out with uh, to help them when they first come back. That kind of fascinated me. The, um, and related to that, in, my, in that chapel, you'll see the root of a tree hanging. I don't know whether you noticed that. Like, on what roots do you stand? Sometimes religions keep us apart. 
um, I can talk about that later, but I think that came to me just by the behavior of these churches, how it didn't matter um, the numbers or who they were caring for. For instance, the health materials, they were difficult to get in because lots of times the churches were supplying surgical uh, materials for the hills because they knew that healthcare was a human right. And um, the soldiers of the armed forces, they said, thank God they are getting treatment. They're air vacked out, they're, um, they, they have pretty good medical care. There was a good military hospital in the capital. It still is a better one. And, um, and but they, they, they all agreed, no, healthcare is a human right. It's something we're debating in the United States just for the past 10 years, uh, vigilantly, you know, and we still haven't decided on how to make it happen. But they really um, said, okay, so we're going to supply those people. Now, we did at times um, find that hard to bring in only because, uh, I mean, we made sure we did bring it in only because it took us longer trying to explain this. So we had to hide some of the stuff we were bringing in. I mean, any surgical materials we just hid, tried to do our best anyway. And uh, um, those are the kinds of things that only we could have done. in a privileged position here during the war. Yeah, let, me, and, let me ask you about that, because yeah. I, I was curious about that today when we thought about, okay, uh-huh. we're going to meet you and talk to you, and how, how did you get here? Like, uh, you came from New Jersey? You had I a came career. from New Jersey. I was 25 years teaching at, in New Rochelle, New York. Yeah. I'm a Catholic sister, sister mm-hmm. of charity, and um, I went to Chile um, maybe I mentioned this this morning. I, I went to Chile during the time of Pinochet with another sister of charity who was teaching at Colgate University for years. And uh, she was a philosopher, religion. I was just straight religion as a teacher in another university. And um, we went there to do feminist theology for a group of women working in Chile with poor women. And, you know, we went for a couple of weeks. I fell in love with both groups of women, those who were here listening to us and then when I watched them working with their poor women those poor women were just um, I, I mean they were their strength there they were so valiant they uh, they there were holding up the world too I um, I mean I Pinochet they called him Pinochet um, I mean that that was an era that um, it kind of fascinated me and the women were again holding the world together um, so we, we, Marilyn and I, the other woman and I, uh, we loved what what we stepped into, and we learned more from them than they learned from us. But it was just a joy. So we decided to do it again, and we went back for another couple of weeks the next year. And then I decided to do a sabbatical in Chile, and I met with some women who had been in Chile for about twenty five years. One only five, 
But their parents were aging, and they wanted to go back closer to the United States because they would only go home once every three years. It was much more expensive. I'm talking about 1980, and the airfare was more expensive, less competition. And um, uh, so they, they wanted to stay in a Latin context and world, but they did want to move closer to be with aging parents. And so um, I asked them, um, you know, when you're going to tour to see where you're going to go, can I go with you? Or may I go with you? And they said, sure, come on. So four of us, two Franciscans, a Nursland sister, and me, Peggy O'Neill, a charity, we toured um, Chiapas, Mexico, Guatemala, Nicaragua, El Salvador, Honduras. And two of us fell in love right away with El Salvador and the movement, and two went to Guatemala. <clears throat> They had been in Chile for 25 years, so I didn't know any Spanish. They were, of course, fluent. And um, you couldn't uh, go work in uh, Guatemala. You had to learn also an indigenous language. I mean, I couldn't learn, too. So, um, But anyway, I fell in love with these people. It was love at first sight, really, for me. I, they had um, such a strong identity. They, um, they were in for the long haul. They had a sense of solidaridad, solidarity. Uh, I can even give you a little story about where that came to me. Not right away, I was here. I was in the refugee camp for about six months. I came out here six months later, and as I said, this was, it was a, a ghost town. Uh, there were about 55, 65 families. There were 400 military soldiers. And uh, the, you, as soon as you entered, there was a sense of mistrust. Um, during a civil war, you can't trust anybody. Um, and that's what I meant when I said I was in a privileged position. I was instantly trusted. I was a Catholic sister. I had my U.S. passport. The people knew I wouldn't be here uh, if I didn't choose to be here. And I chose to be on the side of everybody, but especially on the side of the poor. Um, and so I was trusted uh, from day one. And I can remember going out to an area. <clears throat> there weren't stationary communities yet. These were people who were fleeing all the time from the military, uh, walking through the area where they were living and they'd have to leave it and go back. Or um, the, the community of, after the... Um, refugee camp in uh, the UN refugee camp, that was a permanent community. That was a whole different thing. But you had to go by boat. It took at least 45 minutes to get to it. There was no road. I mean, there were landmines all around this town, you know. We only had one bus. And it would go to the capital for food. Um, well, well they, they could be sure there were no landmines. So it went maybe you know, every other week. But that was a big social event. When it would come back, you'd find out what you could buy and what you could share and what you were going to... And everybody waited downtown. One day, I saw... Uh, I mean, the bus was tiny, so they had food on the roof. They had food on the seats. Only a couple of people went in to get it so they could fit more stuff on the bus. And I saw a banana. I don't know whether it came out of a window or came off the roof, but I saw a banana go to the ground. And I saw a little boy and a goat go run after the banana. And of course, I'm rooting for the boy, not the kid, but the kid, okay? Um, and the boy got the banana. <laughs> and I was so happy. And I, and I just said to myself, 
God, I want to see who that kid is. So I went walking towards him, and I then I watched him walk back, and he was opening the banana as he was walking, and he turned around, walked back, and he gave the fruit to an old man, and he started eating the peel. And so then I said, oh, I'm really going to go find out who that kid is. And I looked at him, and I said, was that your father? And he said, no, and he's chewing away, you know. It's not easy to eat the skin of a banana. And um, I said, well, was your grandfather? And he said, no. I said, but you gave him the fruit. And he kind of went, you know, chewing away. He says, I think he was hungrier than I am. And he just walked away. I told him that when he was a, a young man working as a carpenter, and of course he didn't remember the story, and he kind of smiled. He said, I don't think I ever said that, you know, that kind of thing. But I can't tell you how that moved me. It was those kinds of things that uh, another time, um, I mean, this will be an image that can never be erased. Um, I, every time I hear it, I want to um, share it. Um, and every time I hear it from myself. I, we were, I was called to go out to take care of an emergency, so I had to walk a long, a long distance. And I had to walk it without permission from the military, so I was a little nervous going. Because we had to leave, whenever we left, we had to report to the military headquarters here. And we had to tell them where we were going, and it was supposedly for our protection, but of course they wanted to know where we always were. And I know it was for our protection. So... Um, Anyway, I was the only one in the house when this emergency came, and I couldn't wait for another nun to come to ask her to walk with me, so I left and left them a note. So I, you know, and it was a good, I'm talking hours walk, couple, maybe five or six. I knew I was going to be late, so I left them a note. Couldn't come back. And uh, I took care of the, the, what I went for, and I was going to bring this young girl to the next morning to the hospital with me. We'd walk back. But um, somebody showed up at the, at the area where they were living and said it was in the area of Montepeque, which is Suchitoto. And um, they said that they thought the military looked like they were heading in our direction. You may want to leave or you may want to stay, but we're putting you on alert. They had that kind of communication system among them, somebody, a runner. So that meant that this little community of people had to now have a little assembly and decide, should we risk it and stay? Sometimes it's not the truth. Or should we, should we get on the back of a huge truck and go? And they decided the latter. So we all got on the back of what we would call here a sand truck, flatbed. And didn't take everything with them, but uh, I took my backpack um, and... Uh, you know, we didn't know where we'd be going, but we went, and the driver went down what was a bad street, but at least it was a street, and then for some reason he made a left turn. I never talked to the driver to find out why, but we did go over a small embankment. It wasn't a road, and we couldn't right the truck. If it was a pickup, we could have picked it up, literally, but this was a big truck. So what we had to do was run off the truck, and we hid in tall grasses. And um, I didn't take my backpack. Um, I had my passport in my jean pocket. That We used jean skirts in those days. 
blue jean skirts. And um, so anyway, uh, I wound up with two other women in the you know in one area because we did spread out so we wouldn't all be together. We could run and escape if we had to. And um, you know we shared chit chat and did the you know what are you what are you going to do and blah blah blah. Talked a little bit about our fears, talked a little bit about our hopes, and um, we did sleep off and on. But about 3 o'clock in the morning, it got a little chilly, and I guess we all woke up at the same time, and the one woman of the three of us had a baby with her, and so she took a basket off the truck, and she had stuff in it for the baby. And... So about 3 o'clock in the morning when we all woke up, woke up and got more body warmth, um, she decided to change the baby, to clean the baby and put on clean rags, clean diapers. And, um, but she opened the basket and the first thing she took out was a stack of tortillas. I'm a nervous eater and I was nervous. And, uh, you know, I was there without permission, and I thought, oh, God, they'll send me out of the country if they come, and blah, this. Anyway, um, so she, as soon as she took them out, I was kind of like smiling to myself, oh, good. But the woman on my left, like she was like over here, she went like this. Oh, no, she said, we can't eat your food. She said, you have to keep up your strength to feed the baby. We don't know where we'll be tomorrow. The woman with the baby and the tortillas took her index finger. I will never forget it. And she said, tonight we share our food. Tomorrow we share our hunger. Uh, that is solidaridad. That we are really in this together. Um, you know, I, there's a poet from Nicaragua. She actually teaches in New York. Um, can't think of her name right now. She, um, she says, Solidaridad es la tenura entre los pueblos. It's the tenderness between peoples, between communities. It's, it's, you know, I love people who write me checks. In fact, I would love you to have a rich uncle or a rich aunt, you know. But <clears throat> because, however, you know, um, Solidaridad you know, we when we write a check for the Red Cross after a, that is a gift. We need gifts. Solidaridad is tonight we share our food, tomorrow we share our hunger. We are connected, no matter what, and for as long as we are. I mean, we're connected for as long as we are. So, and I think we're forever. So that kind of. I mean, I I turned eighty one, but when I turned eighty, in December a year ago, um, I said to myself, I am. I am Peggy. I still am. I evolved to never, shop, to never stop evolving. You know, I used to think of evolution as kind of something in the backdrop. I am evolution. And I think that's, maybe that's, again, age, but I think it's being here. Um, everything's a pilgrimage here. Even church stuff is a pill. You walk together. never. It's like the Canterbury Tales. You do whatever you always do on those, those kind of journeys. Make love, make war with each other, or you fight with each everything, um, everything is social. You can even say everything is civic in that sense. You're on a journey. You maybe sing a Catholic hymn or whatever kind of hymn. 
Um, but you're also talking about the president five meters down, that kind of thing. And then you're in silence for a little while. It's almost like um, you keep repeating uh, the life that we're all on. I mean, I, that, that kind of fascinated me when I came here. But, um, you know, when I, I just tell you one more thing about privileged position. There were people who could come to our house and tell us anything. Um, they would risk telling us because there were soldiers on, on the corners in their little stanchions. By the way, I never looked into the eyes of a recruited soldier and saw the enemy. I saw a scared kid, you know, but he had this big AK-47 and... Um, but the people who knocked on our door, they would come in sometimes and go out. And we had men sleeping in our house all the time, 35 up to 45 of them maybe at a night. Of course, you couldn't go back to the communities after 4.30. There'd be a curfew. So anyway, they'd just go out of the house looking left to right. Um, but um, they would come with messages like, there's a fresh head in the park and then go, because they wouldn't want to stay long. And I wouldn't want to respond quickly sometimes, because maybe the poor little soldier would know that that woman told me that, and the fresh head was probably not a soldier. You see, and, and that would get her maybe to disappear. If So anyway, when she said a fresh head, I was home alone that day, and I said, Fresh head, fresh head. Why she said, oh, I said to myself, you know, maybe that's a clue. So uh, I said to myself, okay, I'm going to take a towel with the plastic bag. And the park is right over there. Now, I went quickly, and um, I needed the towel. It was a fresh head. And there was a sign on it. And that's where the military had all their mobile equipment, like cannons and extra stuff in the park, was there. And one other area was at the high school. And um, I knew the head. He was an 18-year-old. We called him El Afro because he had this great head of hair. His mother's still alive in one of the little communities that came back from... Um, Mesa Grande went to Copapayo, and then a year and a half later, they spread out from Copapayo, and they went to, she went with others to El Sitio Sinisro, and I have a little house there. The people built me a little house there. And um, anyway, they, uh, I mean, they, they, we were able to bury the head. It was a kind of a miracle, because those are the kinds of things you, you find hard to do. Uh, and... Um, but, you know, it's, um, it's amazing. That's, that's part of the story. But the real part of the story is I went to Jersey City. And um, when I was coming back, and this was during the war, and I, they were back in that Copapayo now. I, it must have been like 88 or end of 87. And um, I decided to put this picture I had that is a story from the uh, New Testament of the Christians, and uh, it's about Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptizer. 
And these two women happened to be pregnant at the same time. I guess every baby is a surprise, but these were two surprise babies. She was old, Elizabeth, and Mary was kind of young, according to the tradition, and they're both pregnant. And Mary's young. The mother says to her, okay, honey, you're pregnant now. We've gone through everything. But your cousin Elizabeth, who lives in Karim, um, it's a pretty far walk, but she needs help. She's an old lady and she's pregnant. And so maybe you can go and stay with her. I can't leave. So she does. She goes. And I had a picture of a modern piece of sculpture. And I, because the nuns knew I love that story. I love these two pregnant women helping each other out through their, you know, did you take vitamin C? Do you take enough calcium? I don't know what they said, but anyway, they were together by themselves. And I said to myself, I'm going to bring that back and put it in the nursery because, you know, all these women had lost their children or lost them psychologically. I mean, those are the ones I'm dealing with now. I mean, there was, there was loss in the child of innocence, et cetera, you know. Um, but many of them lost them. They were killed. And so I said to them when I came back from that trip home, I said to them the night I went out, I said, oh, I forgot. After a long chit-chatting with a whole group of them, there were about 45 women in the nursery with me. And I said, oh, I have a gift for you. I forgot. Here it is. And it was a very modern piece of sculpture. It was really two stones. But I, you know, one had a little bump and one had a big bump. And I said, look, it's Mary and Elizabeth. They knew Mary was the mother of Jesus and he died on the cross. I said, you know, you'll identify with both of these women. They lost their children. And we've had such losses. And, but they stayed strong and helped each other. There was solidarity. You know, he was stressing that. And... Um, so anyway, um, they said to me, well, how did that other woman's son die? Um, and I didn't want to say it out loud because he was decapitated. And I'm looking at El Afro's mother, who's still alive. Martha is her name. And I said to myself, oh, Peggy, don't tell her that story now. I, I won't sleep and she won't sleep. And so I said to them, look, I'll tell you that in the morning. Well, read the scripture and... So they just said to me, well, you know, just tell us how he died. You don't have to tell us the whole story. So I did say that he was decapitated. And um, his head was cut off, okay? And everybody kind of like stiffens up and looks at Martha. And of course, I'm looking straight at Martha because they're looking at the picture that I'm holding. It was framed. It was more vertical than horizontal. And... Uh, Everybody looked at Martha. I could see her very clearly. And she, she did have tears instantly, but she opened her mouth, almost looked like she was grinning, but she whispered, somebody knows my pain.
and she started walking towards me in the picture. And then she started kind of weeping in this little walk towards me and swaying and smiling, saying, oh, somebody knows my pain. And she literally said, thanks be to God. Gracias a Dios. Somebody knows my pain. Oh, Peggy, somebody knows my pain. I am so glad. And, you know, here I thought it was going to make her fall apart, and it consoled her. And that, that whole sense of always being connected, the energy in the story, the energy in, in what it means to be human is to, is to be present. If you know the story, you're, you're in the story. It's your st- I, I mean, I just, and now, you know, the scientists tell us that we have argon gases that you can't destroy. I'm beginning to think we should put that periodic table inside churches and synagogues Take away some of those other statues. I mean, that's sacred stuff. I, you know, these argon gases that you, you know, that are flying all around, and I inhale what has been exhaled. And so I could be inhaling the argon gases of El Afro. Um, you know, and I said to myself, well, I guess what they, that's what they meant by the communion of saints. You know, I mean, so much of these theoretical words um, were attempts, you know, to um, say what's so mysterious but so real, you know. And uh, But anyway, Martha is still alive and well, and she has lots of kids in Massachusetts. And every time we see each other, our eyes lock. There's no way... uh, uh, yeah, like I said to you this morning, what you have seen, you can't not see. How do you manage to see it now? I see her differently. I see it differently. You know, I see myself differently in the seeing. And But this, it's still alive and well, you know. So let me get back to this place. It's um, We are dealing with grandchildren of Martha who, um, had, you know, she buried four, four sons, three of them here, and one in Virginia, killed by a drunk driver on the highway he was walking to his construction job. So the only son she really buried, fully buried, was that one that was flown down um, from the United States. We tried to tell her, don't bother paying all that money, but she just had to bury one child, she said. So... Um, but uh, again, these are the grandchildren. These are the children that grew up with that kind of imminent uh, being present in the midst of that story. And so what we decided was we wanted these kids who really didn't say with uh, pleasure to anybody in the capital, I'm from Suchitoto, because they knew they were being labeled. You were a rebel, probably. You lived through the war. Um, you broke the law, you were on the wrong side or the right side. They didn't figure it out, but they just knew people were going to have feelings about where they came from. And um, so they never, they kind of like said it in a whisper and never kind of with a, a standing tall. And that came to me when we were wondering, what should we do with this property? We went to the sisters and said to the them and uh, are you coming back to Suchitoto? And they said, no, we don't have enough money to even fix it. We uh, don't have enough sisters to open a school now. And 
No, it's not on our, our radar. And a lot of people are asking to buy it for restaurant, hotel, and somebody literally wanted to put a factory here so they could pay their workers less uh, than they had to pay in the capital in their factory. Now, of course, the sister said, oh, absolutely not. We're not going to permit that kind of behavior. But they weren't sure what they were going to do with this property. And we presented our desire to have it as a peace center. Um, and this was, you know, right after the peace accords. And, well, not right after, but soon after, meaning like 10 years after. And it became a kind of a symbol of hope to see this thing come back to life. And um, we decided we'd focus on the youth, not, again, their own trauma, that they didn't even know how to verbalize or, um, you know, they, they didn't have visual images even. They just heard stories. And so our, our, our thing was, how can they imagine uh, being contributors if they're so, like, uh, with no options, you know, that's what, that's what hung over them. You know, we're still poor. We don't have enough. Uh, uh, we go to school only half a year because we have to help out with the planting because the fathers now don't have machines. I mean, they're working their own lands. In fact, they used a nail on the bottom of a broomstick to make a hole in the ground to put in three seeds and do rows and rows of that to grow their corn. Yeah, I mean, uh, um, that really is why migration started illegally to the states. It really was an economic, um, not immediate, but um, when young people and the father of the family realized, there's no way I can even feed my kids um, as they grow up. Um, and um, so uh, this, and it wasn't, uh, uh, you didn't have coyotes in the beginning, and it wasn't as expensive, and it wasn't as dangerous. And, and, uh, but that's really why it started. It wasn't because of violence of any kind, except the violence of poverty and no options. You know? and we had started in town here with the help of a couple of other North Americans who were very generous family of Quakers. Um, and in fact, we have their ashes under one of the trees over there. And uh, and they they really donated uh, monies for bakers for scholarships. We have a lot of kids who have graduated from university over the past ten years. I mean, what, you're talking about over 150 kids, and um, many of them have come back here. Like the, my um, uh, general administrator, she's a young lawyer, finished um, and on a scholarship, and uh, she's come back not working as a lawyer, but she might, although she's choosing to get a master's in academic uh, administration, hoping to kind of continue what we've started here. Um, the person who's in contabilidad or accounting, scholarship, she's my accounting person. Um, her assistant, part-time, because she didn't get a full scholarship. Um, but they, you know, I can't, most of the people who work here who go to cook, have gone to cooking school, uh, on scholarship aid, that kind of thing. And, and it costs so little to go to university here. People kind of chuckle. Um, like, it only costs maybe $17 a semester at the National University. And um, however, you have to have food and 
uh, either transporte from here or know somebody in the capital. So it does cost, you know, um, maybe $4,000 a whole year for everything. And still that's impossible. Uh, um, so it's kind of easy to get generous people who, who if they are in solidaridad, um, that's kind of, uh, tonight we share our food and tomorrow we share our hunger. You know, I, I'll be with you throughout the, it takes six years here because their high school is shorter, you know, that kind of thing. So now we have a whole official association of those graduates who visited me this year. They want to kind of build bridges with us. You know, how can they function now to continue? Uh, it's, it's, that's, again, why I'm so happy I've stayed. You know, I, coming out tonight, you didn't hear it because you were parked over there. But there were two girls, uh, one a little older, and one uh, playing on the street with a ball. And the one called out, Peggy. And all she wanted to do was hug me. And I, I, I kept hugging. But she needed a longer hug. Do you know what I mean? It, it kind of um, just fascinates me. I, again, I come here. I, I'm just kind of like the happiest and luckiest grandmother uh, in Suchitoto, all these kids, I watch them perform. I weep watching them, you know, play the marimba or the harp. Um, we have Celtic harps. There's a woman from Canada who started a harp group here. And I said to myself after she said, would you like uh, to have harp classes? And I said to myself, are you kidding, lady? I mean, how are we going to pull this off? Uh, there's not even a harpist in the country, I'm thinking to myself. And so then she said, you know, I travel with the, a health group, and I've been to the Amazon, and I've taught harp there. And I said, oh, I better take her seriously. And Wendy um, came every 12 weeks for years. And when she couldn't come because her son had cancer, she taught on Skype every Sunday. And so we have a decent group of harp players We've played for um, our Congress people, and most of them had never seen a harp. So these kids from Suchitoto now could say, uh, when the you know the um, diputados we call them, our deputies, or dep and now what do you call that instrument? And they'd say a harp. It's a, one of the oldest instruments. Do you remember in Egyptian art, you can see, they, and, and I'm watching these kids talk to their congresspeople from Suchitoto, and politically, they were clearly on different sides. I could read, and it just fascinates me to watch this. You know, it's, um, anyway. So, so here, you're te they're teaching art and music. Art and music and dance and yoga. How do we quiet ourselves, you know? Um, we also, this is not a reading culture. A recent joy for me is to um, eat up or grab all of the old Kindles people drop for iPads. You know, they don't bother with these little Kindles anymore. We have now book clubs. But most of them, you know, we don't have too many with the kids. Most of them, uh, there is such a demand for mostly women uh, for these Kindles, I, it, but I can't tell you what a joy it is for me to sit, uh, drive people home, and they're saying behind me, uh, what are you reading right now? I mean, this was just not even, 
I mean, it was just never heard. When I first came here, and I would be living in these communities all the time, of course, I feel like I'm a traitor to them anymore because this just eats my time all the time because we're open every day of the week. And um, uh, But when I would be kind of like wanting to be alone, um, I'd sit up at, I used to have a, a little plastic house. It was just like a plastic bag over bamboo, and that's what everybody had, temporary housing. And I'd be sitting up there by myself, and I'd be reading some novel or something, but they'd all be looking at me quietly because they thought I was reading the Bible. That's the only book they knew that there was. So I'm reading this novel and absolute silence, and the kids would wait because they thought I was praying whenever I was reading, you know. Uh, but I say to these young people who long to get a visa to go to the United States, you know, I say to them, here's a Kindle. You can go anywhere you want to go. You don't have to go to the embassy. You can visit whatever country or you can get into the lives of people who used to live there and now live here. And they laugh at me and they say, really? You know, I'll say, yeah, that's what reading does for you, you know. And But again, it's, um, yeah, we, we have every kind of instrument. You know, I mean, even to the cello um, and violin. And we now even got a baby bass um, because our big bases, just like there are, you, these people aren't all tall like you are, and uh, or I am, or you are. Um, and, I mean, they're just like, oh, forget that. Uh, we have a few young men, um, maybe only two, but a baby base is just not as um, you know overpowering visually. Well, and, and they're a little more manageable. They're tall, but they're skinny, and um, you. Um, you can get hear the sound, and uh, but we have saxophones and trumpets and um, clarinet, and we have young teachers, uh, and that was a, a design to try to get uh, young people as teachers, so that the students would think, well, you know, it doesn't take you years to learn this. Look at this guy's teaching me, and he or she is only. We have mostly men teachers because young women didn't have the opportunity, but that's changing. We have a flute teacher, our art teacher. Uh, we have a harp teacher um, because she's from Costa Rica and she now was uh, contracted by our symphony. And her husband is in charge of our national music school, Senar. He's Honduran, but he comes out because he also plays the harp. She comes out on her motorcycle, not with her harp, but it kind of fascinates me when I see her coming in here on a motorcycle and going in and... It's like our little girls who, uh, you know, play the guitar or the harp, and and they sit there so erect and just so beautiful. And then they go home, and there's like duck poop on the floor. And, um, you know, it just is, but I'm a harpist or I'm a guitarist. and well, I think that fits yeah. really well with what you've done. Isn't just for in, in hearing your story, yeah. you were saying that, like, you would try to help empower these women yeah. and show them, uh, you, you'd read them the example of Mary yeah. and show them all these examples of other women. But the, I think the most potent example of a woman that they could see was you. You know, you may, uh, you can tell them the allegory of, of sure. biblical stories, but the, the reality is there's this woman from New York. Absolutely. Or from New Jersey, rather, sorry. Well, New York, sorry. I taught in New York sorry, for Sorry, but this years. woman from New Jersey, who, yeah. you know, from America, who's come from Absolutely. this privileged place and yeah. this land of plenty to be here with us yeah. in our worst 
time of need, sharing that oh, hunger, yeah. Yeah. you know, sharing these tortillas. That that example is is an amazing thing. Yeah. Like the the harpist who plays to duck poop, you know, yeah. the that that real um, inspirational image of a human being who's just in it. You know, and that's I think what has happened to me here. I. I have focused so much more on the gift of being human because my coming here was not something I planned for years. I was happy doing what I was doing, teaching university. So I'm not sure why it all fell into place, but the gift of being human, um, uh, you know, and I think that's the question we have to keep asking. How am I dealing with this gift? I remember one day at the university in New York, uh, some young man, it was, wrote on the board, human being, B-E-A-N, um, a young kid from the Bronx. Uh, and, you know, I threw my arms around. I said, read that for me. What is that? Oh, he said, being, no. How do you spell it? You know, be, it made me never say human being because I, I didn't say being. So I had to switch it. The gift of being human and I think, like, they do have models here. They can say about Monsignor Romero, he's a public figure. He dealt creatively with the gift of being human. You know, so did my aunt, my brother, my uncle. In, you know, in Memoria Historica, as you remember, you know, as you make present or you step into the presence of and see the courage and the... And and you and long for the forgiveness. We still haven't had public reconciliation. I'm not sure that ever really comes uh, fully, and it never really comes the same way anywhere or everywhere. But it gradually comes. You find uh, the possibility to to really not have divisions really divide. You know. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, you you're you're right in the middle of this. Yeah. You went to the Capitol today. We went to the Capitol, and we couldn't help but think every time we saw a person who was over thirty, yeah, or over fifty, over sixty, you know, the the revolution, the the, the end of the Civil War, is just a little bit older than the internet. That's right. Like the internet came out in ninety four. Right. That this ended in ninety two. So we see people who are sixty. Like, well, that person, you know, okay, they lived in Suchitoto, they probably fought, or they had some sort of... Exactly. And, and you just see all this stuff, and, and we were thinking, like, how many of these people had to take a life? You know, right. Most people had lives taken from them, they, people they knew and loved. And, like, how, how does that reconciliation work amongst people? Because, yeah. I mean, I, I just imagine two old men who've never met landing in the same... Mercado sure. and seeing each other and talking and talking and like you know oh you're from Suchitoto yeah I was here in the capital I was in the military we, you know do they have those kind of conversations yeah. do people land right there? here in this cafe really um, as you can tell Suchitoto in the urban area is still a pretty town Very. and um, like I'm thinking of one guy who's a general in the army comes with his wife on weekends really they have a little house here and when he started showing up here, I can't tell you how, th how that thrilled me. Hmm. Um, uh, you know, other people who lived in Suchitoto, the people who live in Suchitoto who are uh, coming back uh, were more on the side of the government. Really? And yeah, the ones they who came had back money. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And um, they, they know who he is. And those who fought here, 
know who he was or is. Mm -hmm. uh, and there's handshakes. It's not verbalized yet. Maybe it's never going to be verbalized, but maybe they can just do it by an embrace. You know, um, but I see it and it just strikes me as being, yay, more, come. That's what, that's what we'll make for peace, that um, it's possible. Uh, tonight we, we were sharing our hunger and didn't even know it. We were both hungry for something. And uh, now we can, you know, share our food, literally here, that kind of thing. Um, and there's a little story. Um, in fact, in that very truck, because it was uh, 2001, maybe that truck we got in 2003, maybe not. Anyway, I thought it was in that. No, it wasn't in that truck because we didn't have a back on the truck. I went to the Capitol um, on, in a caravan. In 2001, we had two earthquakes, one January 13th, one February 13th, believe it or not. Both in two different areas, but the January 13th was in the area of Sonsonate, Lourdes, and Santa Tecla. The other was by the coast. Um, anyway, I, um, we formed a caravan of pickups, and we had a little banner, so everybody knew. You know, we would make some stops, and if they wanted to go and help, we live in an area where earthquakes, we feel them, but they're we're, we're bedrock. And the farther north you go it's even rarer to have serious earthquake damage. We're not near a fault. The only thing that would really affect us is the volcanic lake that's very, very old, uh, Ilopango. Uh, that's a, 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 an active volcano. And if that erupts again, that'll reach Suchitoto. That would be the only thing that would be bad here. Okay, the other thing that I wanted to say is, let me go back, why was I talking about earthquake? Oh that we go the caravan. And um, the last stop was in Santa Tecla. And it was really by a church that was very damaged, Our Lady of Guadalupe. But before we got to that last stop, <clears throat> we stopped in the capital to pick up water, beans, and rice. I mean, this was basic. We weren't going to help anybody. We were just going to make sure they could eat. <clears throat> so, um, and console. I mean, you're just a company. And we, we were about five pickups full of people. So I'm in the first pickup. And um, I always purchased mandarins, um, tangerines. It's, this is the season for tangerines, January and February. And um, so anyway, uh, there was one little girl that got on the last stop all the time. Her, her name was Martha, too. And she, I didn't know her. Uh, but I got to know her right away. I fell in love with her right away. She would get on so clean. Her mother dropped her off. Her mother must have worked, didn't come with us. But um, <clears throat> I'd be in the back. We had a lot of stuff in the back, too. Um, not in the back seat, in the back of the cabin or whatever you call it. And um, so anyway, when she got on, I saved her the last tangerine because they're eater-friendly. I mean, you can peel them, peel them down the highway. And uh, so anyway, one day there were no tangerines. And so she got on, looked back at me, and I went like this, and she went like that, like, I don't believe you. You know, you didn't save me one, I think she was thinking. So anyway, this little girl, why I loved her was she just knew how uh, to do anything you asked her to do. But she also 
was so inquisitive. Like in the back of the pickup, she'd be checking out the the tools, the the chain that the spare tire was on. She she got dirty right away. You know, I, we would have called her years ago a tomboy. Uh, you know, but I mean, she was just into everything and happily into everything. Anyway, this day there were no mandarins. <clears throat> And all of a sudden, I saw her moving her index finger like this, and I'm thinking, what she got now? What I, I mean, really? And then she crawls back to me and handed me half a grape. She had been splitting a red grape in half and actually put that grape in my mouth. <laughs> and I said to myself, I don't believe this. This is, here I am. Peeling down the highway, and this I'm, I'm really going to Mass, going to Eucharist. There's a line in the church's prayer where the priest over this cup of wine says, um, fruit of the vine and work of human hands. And I used to think that meant planting it, you know, mm -hmm. and you get this wine. <laughs> and, you know, here I get white wine. And... And I'm saying to myself, my God, I just went to Mass. I don't have to go to Mass for a month. This was wonderful. <laughs> I get this little girl. She's the presider of this ceremony. She looked at me. She had already eaten her half in her <laughs> dirty hands and put it in my mouth. And then she crawled back with a smile and she waved to me. And oh. tonight we share our food. And boy, you know, I never saw her after the two weeks that we were doing this. I mean, she lives in Santa Tecla. She's probably 30. But there are times that she's so alive in me, um, to me. I just learned some, I mean, I, I could see somebody taking a bite of a grape and putting it in the mouth of their lover, or we'd hear this little girl with this old woman loved me uh, in a way that I wouldn't have expressed in the same way, and it's too bad. I thought, well, here's the other thing. That was January... Um, 13th and red grapes are what you bring to somebody's house on Christmas you bring like half a pound of red grapes they're the big ones with the pits mm -hmm. and um, and that's like kind of what you visit the house and bring and that was probably left over from Christmas that's why she only had one <laughs> this was January 13th this last grape, and you see them all now in the in the markets only at Christmas time. They're still around, but those are the fancy food, you know, not our markets, because yeah. they're expensive. You know, they're imported. But a half a grape, I know. Yeah. There's there's something about you and watching people share fruit. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> compartir those yeah. frutas. <laughs> yeah, that's beautiful. You've you've. Uh, made a very unique life for yourself Absolutely. for sure but for for others here i mean this this center where we are i mean we're we're parked here just sort of casually in our van it's very kind we did our your people did our laundry today oh great they folded it beautifully uh <laughs> we've been using the shower but there's this whole other aspect to this place that's yeah. educational there's art there's the whole story of the war which my 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 generation i mean you know you're american you know how uh, solipsistic we are and yeah. how how much we ignore the rest of the world i knew nothing about this civil war 
And I feel like um, you know, we're in this place of a celebration of peace, mm-hmm. a celebration of reconciliation. You're helping people find purpose and find, uh, I don't know, find out who they are. And, yeah. and it's, a, it's, a, it's a unique thing to be able to be within um, just a few blocks of where you found a severed head and mm-hmm. where there were bodies stacked in front of this. It's, it's hard to even really imagine. It mm-hmm. doesn't seem to me it's an abstract concept to you. You've lived this reality. And I, I, I just, I'm, I feel very fortunate to have met you and to have been able to share in the fruit of your story. Cause well, it's, thank uh, you. It's you know, I'm so convinced lovely. that we're all connected. Hmm. You know, I had to speak in Rome two years ago or a year and a half, I forget. Um, it was the 400th anniversary of Vincent de Paul, who was uh, Les Miserables, that whole era of the French Revolution. And um, he founded the Daughters of Charity, um, and a woman with him, uh, Louise, St. Louise, she organized it, but he did inspire this handing out bread. And, um, you know, the... Louise got these wealthy women to um, give bread. Um, they didn't hand out the bread. They got their little servants to hand out the bread. But what was formed from that whole gesture was four centuries of, um, you know, loving by giving. Um, you know, um, anyway, uh, at the time... It, w- it was the time when so many people were leaving, like, northern Africa, going, dying and falling off their boats in the Mediterranean. I mean, that, that was the time of this talk. And I was very happy that this present pope, um, you know, boldly said, welcome the strangers. I mean, he really stressed that. But I wanted, and I did say, I wish he would change the phrase, there are no strangers. I knew why he was saying it. But uh, we are all connected. Um, I mean, we all have the DNA of the creator, of that life force, that energy. And I think, you know, we, we truly have trespassed on the fullness of God by locking God in a person or in a religion or a box or in a gender. Um, our God is too small. We've trespassed on the fullness. And, um, you know... Uh, Maybe because of my dog. I, I mean, when that dog looks at me, even though she barks at your dog, when she looks at me, she, that life force in her is just flowing. That energy energizes me. And because she is, I am more Peggy. And I think that about everybody, you know, um, uh, that we are truly connected. Whether it's, you know, um, I'm not alone in my pain. Uh, you know, I'm not alone. Uh, there's another woman who has suffered like I've suffered, like Martha said. Or, you know, I, it's just, um, I feel more connected to the people I belong to in the States, even though they're so far away. Um, because, I'll tell you, uh, we're old. We sisters are all old. Nobody and I understand why, we're a dying breed, but what we did, we did well. I mean, we did things that we didn't know you called feminist, but there were for 400 years, women kind of social workers organizing this group going out and 
I mean, in the United States, there were Catholic sisters who founded hospitals and universities and are doctors and lawyers and professors. And, and uh, long before, women were able to do these things because they had other responsibilities like family. And we chose to kind of organize in that kind of a way that we could, as a unit, um, develop skills to be uh, in those uh, caretaker or whatever positions. And, um, you know, so uh, it's, it just kind of fascinates me that I was going to say, now I know we're getting old and, and, and young people aren't choosing it, but they don't have to choose it. They, they can be women. And the way we've been women as presidents and founders, and, and um, so it kind of, kind of delights me that... Um, <clears throat> Even though I know we're dying breed, um, there's a lot of energy. Like, there's one Brazilian theologian. Her name is Ivone Gabara. She works with poor women in, in Brazil, theologian as well. <clears throat> she was silenced by the last pope, or the one before him, the Polish one, John Paul II. And so she went to get another PhD, you know. She was too much of a liberal, and he didn't like that, so that... And she said to her superior, do me a favor and write a thank you note to that pope for the silencing me because this has been the best couple of years of my life getting a PhD now in philosophy. I mean, she went to Innsbruck. To, no, she didn't. Where did she? Belgium to, um, to study. And, uh, you know, but anyway, she says she likes to think of God as the sap, not a sap, the sap, the juice, the life force of everything. The trees and the and the dogs and Peggy, the life force, and uh, my energy. Uh, you know, there was a time when um, we used to call the Blessed Mother or Mary the God Bearer. The Greek word is Theotokos. Um, we're all Theotokai. We all bear that energy, you know, we make that energy present and, you know, by the way we touch and forgive and protest and be honest and truthful and uh, creative, you know, um, and, and again, I think that, you know, um, these religious symbols and rituals are rich for me because I can reinterpret. Young people uh, don't have the exposure to even reinterpret, let alone the energy or desire. But I do think art is truly, um, is truly spiritual. And it... Um, it does tap the imagination and the the soul, and the, if you stare, if we all stare at uh, images and or stand back and express what we see, and I love to see like ten-year-olds saying, "I don't like that one," and the others are, "Well, I like the color." Well, which color don't you like? And they start talking like that, and I say, "Wow." That's it. And then they might say, well, okay, but I still don't like it. It's not my favorite. And that's okay, you know. And um, 
you know, like uh, I grew up thinking that my religion was the best. It may have been the best for me, but it certainly wasn't the best. And you find yourself needing as a human, I think, to find uh, multiple wisdom sources. Or let me say, it: if you have found multiple wisdom sources, you are lucky. I think that's what it's meant to... Um, to be uh, this experience of, like I'm a little Buddhist, and um, you know I'm I'm very Catholic, if you scratch, but not all of it. Um, uh, I'm I'm I Jewish. I, mean, I can I can identify with those prophets, and I mean the tree in there, the, the book of Genesis, Jesus dies on the cross, what are you going to see? What are your roots? You know, what, uh, what do you stand on? What helps you stand? You know, um, and I go like this because that's what music does for me. Um, you know, when these kids play, I say to these kids, when do you pick up your guitar at home? Oh, when I'm sad. Really? Yeah. Sometimes I get bad marks, bad notes. And I come home and I don't tell my mother first uh, until I play the guitar. I really, and I said, is that the only time you play the guitar when you say, no, when I'm, my mother can't get my baby brother or sister to sleep. I'll play, say, mommy, I'll play the guitar. Maybe that'll help. So again, that use of music, that that, that does something to, like my mother would say, now say a little prayer. She's doing a little prayer. She's doing a little uh, prayer for herself makes me feel better about me. I got a bad note, but boy, I can make this note beautiful. N O T E. Spelled it the same, too. Notas is notes, is what they call their grades. I never thought of that. But, like, again, um, these kids do not flock to church as they don't flock to churches in a lot of places in the same way. <clears throat> and I think that may be healthy. In some ways, um, these people are deeply spiritual. When I came here, I clearly went to Mass less because that, not, that, that is not a way you could behave here. You couldn't walk six hours, <laughs> uh, you know. So you went when you could or when the priest came. And if the priest came once a year, even the dogs went to church. What you've yeah. built here, the uh -huh. last thing that you seem to be building is the church itself. Yeah, and you've it's built not, everything yeah. else here, and you've got a community here. Mm -hmm. The church 
aspect of it, while yeah. clearly important, yeah. is not the the the, um, the cornerstone. No. It's not the key thing. It's and it the, won't be just a church. Right. You know, um, and a little bit of it was it cost a fortune, and it's historical <laughs> patrimony, and sure. and you know, really, it's. But, but this, what but I, I guess, I what, the point I'm trying you. to make here is that you've, you've, you've you. this you referred to yourself <laughs> as an evolution. Exactly. You continue to evolve. This, to me, I grew up Catholic. Uh-huh. I, I often refer to myself as a fully recovered Catholic. Me too. But <laughs> me too. But this, That's great. This is not. Um, this is not a Catholic church. Mm-mm. This is an evolution of. This right. is a community center. I think this is ultimately what a church might have meant to be. Exactly. Is yeah. a community, a place of yeah. communion, community. Right. And you've built this thing where um, you 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 pique the interests of the human beings who live here. Yeah. And you provide for them, and you are able to touch the rich uncle or the tourist who can come That's in, right. and yeah. and help support this thing. Mm-hmm. But this thing exists for these people who live here, and yeah. I, I think that's, that's lovely. Yeah, and see, that really is very much related to the church's role before and during the war, these base Christian communities mm-hmm. that um, helped them survive, you know. Uh, the stories that they were immersed in, they would apply them to that simple structure of look, see, judge, and act. Like, look at the reality, analyze it, and what do you have to do because it shouldn't be that way? And and then celebrate. See, judge, act, and celebrate your victories. You know, that kind of thing. That it is the community. They weren't, um, you know, um, uh, measuring their being a good person just by church going. They weren't like cockroaches in the church. <laughs> um, you said yeah. earlier about that young soldier. You never looked in the eye and saw an enemy. No. I, I would imagine like most people who've really thought about it, you don't see a, a straight good or evil. Mm-mm. It's not a thing that really exists. Do you, I mean, that's, I, I, you have a considerably more experience than I do, but I, I don't see that yeah. they're real things. There's not good guys <coughs> and bad guys. You know, <clears throat> there's a, a, a young man who um, now, when he was nine and a half, he was, he's the only survivor of the Copapayo Massacre, which made all the people finally leave the community and go to Honduras because there were two stages to the massacre. Um, A lot of people survived the first stage, but um, he's the only survivor of the double massacre there. And it took two days. And um, when he watched his whole family being shot at the base of the lake, and... um, Somebody pulled him up at the, by the hair because he was told to stand up. He was hiding behind a tree. tree, uh, And the soldier, Monterosa, the colonel, okay, yelled out, okay, stop, round up who's ever still alive, make them into a file, you know, to walk towards the to center of town. <clears throat> and he was one of the last ones to get pulled up. He's on the, the line and this soldier behind him, because it was a civilian, a soldier, a civilian, a soldier, this soldier behind him gave him a plastic bottle with water in it and a plastic bag and said to uh, Rogelio, here, take these things. You'll, you'll need them. 
And so he said, I took them, and I was scared to drink from the bottle because I thought it would be poison. And the soldier looked at me, he says, um, and um, when he tells the story, and he said, no, 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 it's water. You can drink it. And he said, I drank it. And then in that moment, I knew there were good soldiers and there were bad soldiers. A nine-year-old, mm. you know? Um, and when he tells that story to, to university kids, mm. you know, it's just so effective that, um, you know, I mean... Uh, and another thing, uh, they spend the whole night, they hang a person, they make them walk in the heat of the day going through a couple of towns, and they hang a uh, like a mentally handicapped old man. And, but what they do when they wake up the next morning, uh, they're still walking uh, the first morning after the first part of the massacre, where 155 were murdered down at the lake. Um, and what they first did was, um, oh, when they woke up, they had them all lined up again, and the colonel shouts out, um, okay, all you guys, as you were, right now you have my permission to take all the young girls off the line, and you can go over in that field and do whatever you want with them, but enjoy it. Well, the mothers, you know, he talks about the screaming and them getting hit with the butts of guns and, and you know, oh, and they could hear the girls crying as they were walking. And, and of course, uh, they not only raped them, but they killed them. And um, when he woke up the next day, the only one alive because he dove into a tall grasses with another kid who died of an injury. But as he's walking back, he sees those bodies. Now, this kid is nine and a half. He sees those bodies already eaten by dogs, you know, arms out, away from their bodies. And it, he's all alone another night with that whole memory, you know. Now, um, he's had a hard life. I met him, Rogelio, this happened in 83, and I met him in 87. He said very little about the story. Um, now he, in the saying, he has become a fuller human being, but he is a damaged person, damaged, um, constantly, and has tried to escape with alcohol over the years. And the one thing that really transformed the little family he had two or three sons, but when their little girl was born, the last one, she, um, Heidi is her name, she just turned the whole family around. I mean, it, it, uh, she's bright and happy and full of life, and Rogelio is a happier human being, as a happier father and husband. And in fact, they just got married this year, and I was the, well, well, the best woman, whatever they call them here. I'm like the madrina, the godmother at the wedding, and and it was just such a joy for me to uh, see him so whole, you know, and his wife has, uh, she's the daughter of a very severe alcoholic. I can't believe her father's still alive, but Rita, and um, 
and he have stayed together in the midst of what really was a hard life. And, you know, they, we had a mock trial here in this old chapel run by the Jesuit University, the Human Rights Department. And he was one of the survivors giving testimony at a trial. And um, the attorney in this fake trial, oh, it was so moving in this old beat-up chapel. It didn't have the new roof. And anyway, there was another Sister of Charity visiting me at the time. So she didn't know any Spanish, but she sat in and listened. That You could get the feel <clears throat> of everything. And so there were like three or four that gave testimony. But his, she listened to. And... You know, the, the, the lawyer said, well, you know, and how did you survive? That was kind of the thrust of one question. I'm thinking of the impeachment right now. And, um, and he said, well, I, you know, he talked about how he really couldn't talk and talk. He said, what really helped me over the years were the Sisters of Charity. You know, I mean... And, um, you know, I'm thinking to myself, well, gee, I'm not a psychologist. And, but there was one Franciscan on board at the time, and she was. But I was the only one left, so he kind of never separated. We were just sisters, hermanas, yeah. you know. But he did know Sisters of Charity, because I'm here that long. And, well, I can't tell you how that was so moving. I had never heard him say that. Mm. But, you know, I, mean, we, I heard him in the beginning, and he said maybe a paragraph for the Truth Commission, you know. Um, but boy, now he tells the story to the detail. Uh, it's just incredible. Um, how, yeah. how can people help what you're doing? How can people be involved in what you're doing? You know, people who come to visit on delegations formally, they stay in a community. You don't know El Salvador until you really sleep uh, in the campo and um, be amazed at how ingenious. I love to look in the kitchens to see what comes out of the kitchen, and the kitchen looks like it looks, you know, and um, it has so little, and um, it's just amazing. But it, just to get the feel of how the majority of Salvadorans used to live, Post-war, everything kind of moved to more um, light industry and uh, sweatshops. And, and that's when you had more problems with men. They lost their identity. They used to be farmers. And the women had to be the supporters in the capital. So they were the sellers, and they still are. They're the ones who put on the aprons, and they have the cash in there, and they're selling. And, and, um, but the, the men, it, it was hard. It's harder for the men who, as I said, lost their identity. They were all farmers, and there's no space in the capital for farming. And um, that's when a lot of alcohol, I mean, they turned to alcohol. They just lost an identity, or they had only memories of the war, and whereas the women... You know it, and that's when you had more abuse, physical abuse of women in the houses. But um, yeah, um, you know, and people talk about the gangs. We didn't start. I mean, I don't like to say art prevents violence. Art t 
touches your humanity. And being human, if you are human, you won't be violent. I mean, that's not going to be your choice. So, um, but the more you know what it means, this gift of being human, that what you do is pleases you, and you can please others with what pleases you, your ideas, your poetry, your thoughts, your music, your sadness. Share it, paint it, um, you know, and uh, so, uh, you know, again, these poor kids, it's such a complex thing. You know, we don't have, we have one psychiatric hospital in the country, and I, I, I don't even think we have a dozen psychiatrists yet. Um, Wait, say that again. In this whole country? In the whole country, there's a small psychiatric hospital and there's right outside the capital. Less than a dozen psychiatrists. I'm, I'm sure. Maybe there's more now, I mean, but there were so few when they were. And whenever we have an earthquake or a, or the burning of a bus and everybody gets frightened, I mean, or high homicide rates in the capital. I mean, we certainly have had our murders here, too. But we worked hard to prevent it um, by doing things like this. And um, But we do have our problems. You have to be so careful. And um, But, you know... Everybody's afraid that we also have a wing of our school, if you will, and it really is an emotional wing, like your liberal arts emotional area, like psychology and all that. And we focus mostly on women who come for the courses, some of them disciplined with love. Um, the, uh, uh, how to bring back the joy of living. And the subtitle to that course was learning how to manage our fear. I mean, you get afraid when you read in the newspapers that they're burning buses. You never want to send your kids to college, you know, um, or shooting the bus drivers or robbing you and you resist and you get shot. I mean, terrible things happening. But the desperation and to think you can, you know, how we first react to that is just get, give the police larger guns. I mean, it's violence working against violence and you know, until we really, in that section of Chicago that's crying for help, use all of the, the skills that we bring to the healing process of, I mean, it's so complex, that's why we avoid it. And, but we can't do that much longer. I mean, it's so complex about the planet, that's why we avoid it, but we can't do it that way much longer. We are really at an awakening moment. I'm so glad I live to be as long as I, you know, I want to see it's being, how it's fulfilled, but we are on the road of a new birth or a very quick death, form of death, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Um, but it's gotten so bad, it has to get better. It just has to. If if I'm right now a compassionate listener in the yeah. United States or in Australia or in the mm. UK or Germany, mm. how how can I help you or people in El Salvador? Where, where how can how can a foreigner? I don't want to I say think stranger. What, you, I, what we have to develop are um, uh, the pattern of solidaridad, knowing that we're all connected. Um, you know, you you won't forget El Salvador. I mean, if you really immerse yourself in a place, it's like getting a low-grade virus. Hmm. Like liken it to a herpes virus. You can never get rid of it. 
And that's what a little bit of this, I went to Palestine and, and studied in Israel and I mean, uh, that was a, that's a virus. I mean, I really saw the scandal of governments wanting war. When the, I could sit with a Palestinian uh, and sitting down and the same that we drink and coffee, that terrible Turkish coffee, <laughs> uh, you know, and we, but, we're, you know, governments were fighting with each other. And here we are playing cards, well, checkers or dominoes, whatever we were playing. And. I learned that, you know, only only governments really want war. I mean, the, the people get along. And, um, you know, so I, I guess what, you know, what you can do is just know that um, these, I, I guess, let me say it this way. I've had a lot of awakening moments in my life. I was a little girl when World War II ended. I, in my coloring books... I saw Wax, the Women's Army Corps, in tunnels fighting, you know, and I would know that wasn't Mickey Mouse. They were, you know, warriors. And uh, I can remember playing gin rummy, learning how to play gin rummy with my dad in the kitchen. We were alone. I'm one of seven. There were only three of us at the time, I think. But um, I was alone with my dad, and he was eating a liverwurst and onion sandwich on Jewish rye bread with seeds, and he had a great big beer, a Schaefer beer, a great big one, and he was teaching me four of a kind and three of a kind. My dad was a plumber, and um, he, for something turned up, and he said to me, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I said to him, oh, Daddy, I want to be a whack, a wave, that was the Navy girls, or a nun. And he said, I don't know how old I was. And he said to me, he smiled, and he said, really? He said, do you like uniforms? As you know, the wax, yeah. but the waves had a pretty uniform. I said, yes, Daddy. I mean, I really, I loved the blue of the navy, and, but the wax was stronger. I see them in the coloring books, and, and those nuns have those uniforms too, those outfits, and and he smiled. He said to me after that, I don't know why. But then he finally said, you want a little bit of my sandwich? And I thought that sandwich was so ugly and smelly. And I said, yeah, I'll take a little bit. And he said, you want a little beer? And I said, he got up and he got a, a juice glass and he filled it with beer. And, you know, I realized about five years later that was my first communion. <laughs> my dad. I mean, here wow. I... He just poured himself. He, what he communicated to me that day was, you know, honey, you're a little crazy about what you want to be when you grow up, but I'll be here to kind of like sort it out with you, you know. And my dad was not like the great talker. Um, but when he spoke, he spoke. Yeah. And I, I had those awakening moments, you know. Um, <laughs> when I was really little and World War II did come to an end, and we had to go to church. I was in Mammoth Beach, and my mother said that my dad wasn't home because it was uh, vacation time. We were down the shore, and he only could come on weekends because he worked on construction. And I had two bachelor uncles who helped us rent this house all the time. And my mother woke us up, and she said, the church bells are ringing. We have to go to church, and thank God the war's coming to an end, and we won. So we have to go and thank God. So my mother wheels us down in the church bells in this little chapel. So we go in. I see a woman weeping on the part. She just was over there. She was just shaking and crying. And I got like little. My mother always went to the front. So we went by her. 
When we came out, I guess we each said a little prayer. And I said to my mother, Mommy, was she the enemy? And my mother said, what are you talking about? I said, Mommy, she was crying. She must have lost. We were happy we won. So I thought she was the enemy. And you know, my mother had to tell me, well, maybe she lost her father in the war. And I thought, you know, I couldn't believe, I just couldn't put together in my head that you could win and lose. Mm-hmm. And lose and win. That, that to me, but I, so I had all these awakening moments as a kid. I lived through the civil rights movement and actively participate. I was into the feminist movement. I mean, I thought I was a strong woman. And then I realized, hmm, well, I'm not as strong as I thought. And, and then I get my master's in theology during the time of Vatican II. I'm talking to you now, knowing you were Catholic or are a recovered Catholic, um, like me. Um, I, I mean, that. I thought I came here like pretty avant-garde and ready. I was not ready for innocent suffering, for our inhumanity to each other. I mean, I really, these people are just so peace-loving and innovative and struggling and giving their energy over to surviving, you know, doing the very basic things to enjoy life, laughing hard, crying hard, dancing hard, and nothing changing, you know. Um, I just wasn't ready for it. And they helped me adjust to um, ways of still um, knowing that... um, our loved ones will not have died in vain. And when I heard that in the beginning, I was in the refugee camp early on, these women would say, and I'd be focusing all the time on listening to the words because I didn't know any Spanish, and they'd say at the end of every story, but they will not have died in vain. And I thought that was like the end of a movie with the nice music playing, romantic, until... I realized they were saying it like it was an oath. They will not have died in vain. They implied, I will continue the struggle of, you know, and I said to myself, oh, I guess that's what I'm supposed to be doing. Every time I gather, when we go to Mass together in this refugee camp, Jesus will not have died in vain. I will continue the struggle for justice and truth and forgiveness and compassion, whatever needs to emerge in the, I mean, they taught me so many things that they didn't know they were teaching me, you know, and um, I play that back to them, you know, that they will not have died in vain. Oh, yeah, they know exactly what they meant, even though they didn't say it, you know, and so I think uh, if you do, the, the, the people who really go to places like this, I've been to Lebanon, I've been to Greece, uh, but when I was in the Middle East, you know, the first time I went with her, you know, you had AK-47s between the guy on the bus with you going to his, you know, and you, that was my first country where, you know, that was really, I went in 69, 1969, 70, it was right yeah. after the 67 No Man's Land Division. Um, we have a group here that comes and it comes to the center from Holland. And it's almost like Musicians Without Borders. It's a program called um, Yo Soy Musica. I am a musician. And it's all built on rhythm. And they've been in uh, Palestine 
12 years. Their motto is, War Divides, Music Unites. And they've been to Rwanda for 14 years. You know, and they've come here. So again, it's all these subtle ways of the healing process of, you know, people who come in and see people in the center. That's why we're open all the I think I work eight days a week. Uh, um, because they can't come from the communities uh, if they're going to school. They can come from the urban area in the afternoons if they study half a day. See, only half a day they study. So they come in the afternoon here if they go to school in the morning or vice versa. If they live in a community where they can really walk from that community or take one bus, but their parents have to think art is worth it, they'll send them for computers and maybe they'll pay for the car fare. But dance, they'll send them for English classes, which we have here, because they seem more useful. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a big thing here is how do we and when do we expect people to kind of pay a little for classes? Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I'm the more generous type. I want them to get everything. But, of course, I know what a welfare mentality is like, too. And how do you distinguish? So we try to do it by way of volunteerism, you know, but don't make it like everybody over here who can't pay and are going to clean up with us, you know, right, we can't. Right. It's a subtle thing to get started, you know. We haven't started yet. But um, how do you make this self-sustaining? That's where friends can help. Mm-hmm. You know, how do we really, like, I will rent out that conference space, the chapel. Mm-hmm. We'll have not just a space for our own kids. It'll be kind of like um, Lincoln Center in Manhattan, you know, uh, this uh, place where you can perform. Yeah. Um, where uh, we will have good uh, exhibit space, you know, um, where... And, and those are the kinds of things. You hate to say it's always donations, but it's also, we have a lot of people who come who have retired. I have two women from Jersey City who write grants for me, um, small ones, like the Dewan Foundation, uh, really help us with computers. I've had people who donate, um, uh, like instruments, and they come down when people fly down rather than shipping them or... You know, I just got these Raspberry Pi computers. Mm-hmm. Um, somebody um, brought me a new harp this year. Um, and these are retired women. I'm just thinking of them. Um, um, you know. And again, I think the way we vote or the way we talk about the complexity of migration and connect it all, I think we really need a ecological revolution I, the vibrations of the planet we they've got to change but they won't change unless our inner vibrations are dealt with and i think yeah. the things we yearn for uh, you know like look the thing about el salvador it's so tiny it's the most densely populated country in central america and it's the smallest um, that, like, I'm a star here. When I go to the Capitol, a lot of people say hello to me, and I don't know who they are. <laughs> but, you know, they just know about this place. And this last exhibit, we've had over 21,000 visitors. Like, really? it's up into the 500s now. Wow. 21,500 something. That's wonderful. In, like, a, not even two years. So the place is a place to visit. Even, 
on weekends, people come from the capital. And these are people who have a little more money. They drive here. And so all of that, uh, and the people who come internationally, you know, like Suiza. And I had a German couple here. And oh, the Germans come in with these like almost like war machines. I yes. mean, they travel in these huge vehicles. And they're mostly retired people. And this one woman just loved this place. She gave me a $50 bill, and she said, I wish I had, you know, I mean, but she left her energy. Mm-hmm. You know, she left her uh, spiritual whatever desires. I mean, she knew that she longed for what we longed for, not just in this place, but every place. You know, and I, what, sometimes we get these groups from Europe that come, the tour groups, <clears throat> and they're a mixture of countries. And they'll say, I remember when we first started the Harps, <clears throat> they'd come around, they stay at the real fancy hotel here. Have you gone into Los Almendros Hotel? No. It's so wonderful. It's owned by two, uh, two gay men, one Salvador and one from France. The guy from Salvador used to be the consul in Paris. And uh, they've been such a gift here. Giving permission for young men and young women to look at a gay couple and see, wow, you can make it. And you can be admired as a business person and a generous, socially active. It's, we've had a lot of gifts from them. And, um, but they, you know, they, they are on the map when visitors come, if you come with a good tour group. And a lot of these European um, tour guides were coming, different tour guides from Europe, just to get a sense of this place. And, you know, some of them, like from Germany or Poland, um, they would go by these kids and they'd stop at, because we had little exhibits of what kind of music, and, and they'd cry thinking of World War II. And, you know, they'd say, oh, and so forth and so on. And when they'd leave, I would say, oh, we're so connected. And then I would say things like, but you know, you were so lucky. You had Beethoven and university. You had all these things that helped you heal. Like here, there was just so few. We, like I can say, we had so so, so few psychologists. Yeah. Like we really need dentists. So now we have a lot of dentists who come down. We started having, you know, dent- now we have a lot of dentists in the city. Dentistry, thanks be to... I have one girl who's getting a, a scholarship from somebody from Alaska starting to study dentistry. Oh. And I said to her, oh God, what made you think of that? She said, I don't know. I just thought we need a dentist. My mother works in the hospital. And, you know, I was thinking, I don't really want... But I knew we need dentists. And I said, well, go for it. You know, I mean, again, they used to all want to be... Um, see, there are no guidance counselors in school. And their parents never went to school. A lot of our parents still don't read and write. So they really don't know how to guide their kids. So they'll find out. They'll go to an office and say, what did you study? And they say, oh, business administration. Oh, I'll ask for that. You know, I mean, that's what I'll go for. Uh, now they're going for psychology, social work. Um, they're, they're, they're also choosing technical degrees with a certain amount of, I mean, just like the states, a certain amount of self-esteem. I do want to, you know, be be a mechanic. A lot of them want to do stuff for, with computers now, of course. And I'll say, well, did you ever think of being an airplane mechanic? Why don't you check that out, too? You know, yeah. really? I said, why not? And you can you also learn English in school. We could get more English, and maybe you'll be a, 
you know, and then we find out that, well, the planes from the United States are kind of like uh, their mechanics work here. They, they use the mechanics from here because it's cheaper, hmm. like China and this one and that one, you know, okay. And so, again, I've seen all these changes, and um, it's good for people to come to know that El Salvador is on the move. That's that's it. But what it needs is education and medical attention and less corruption. And but we need all those things on a large scale in the states. So how do yeah. we kind of help us all help each other? That kind of thing. Yeah, evolution. Evidently, it's evolving. Like the church yeah. that we belong to, this whole sexual uh, s- scandal. But it's evolving. Thank God it's out. Yeah. Thank God. You know, I found myself saying the other day, you hear how loud my dog barks. She's so strong. I had a, I just buried over there. I have two dogs buried here, but um, the last one was the same, a Maltese French race uh, together. And she was just gentle. But my dog is so strong. I found myself saying, I think she's a trans you know, I mean, now to hear myself use that term, I said, wow, that's some talk things about are, evolution, right? times they are You know, changing. I mean, and the people here said, okay, okay. And I was thinking, yeah, what, what? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, let me see what time it is. It's 20 after 8. We've had two hours. I am so, so grateful well, for every minute of it. We will sing your praises to the Well, you don't to have the, to do that. To you don't have to do anything but be yourselves. Oh, thanks. And love each other and... And um, enjoy and and just yeah. know that I'm in you forever and you're in me forever. And, you know, I think I've evolved to never stop evolving. And I'm kind of like a social project. <laughs> Everything I am has come from somebody or some experiences or some stories or, yeah. And a suspiciously so. large amount of fruit in your stories. <laughs> What's going Thank on? You. Okay. <laughs> Gracias, hermana Peggy. Mm-hmm. Just Peggy. Just Peggy, not Hermana Peggy. Well, I want to be your sister. Orillitas del canal Cuando llega la mañana Sale cantando la noche Desde lo de Valderrama Sale cantando la noche desde lo de Valderrama. Adentro puro temblor, el bombo con la baguala. Y se alborota quemando del chispear la guitarra. Y se alborota quemando de le chispear la guitarra. Lucero solita brote del alba. ¿Dónde iremos a parar si se apagaba el derrama? Iremos a parar si se apagaba.
pone a cantar un cochero lo acompaña y en cada vaso de vino tiembla el lucero del alba y en cada vaso de vino tiembla el lucero del alba Samba del amanecer Arrullo de Valerrama Canta por la medianoche Llora por la madrugada Canta por la medianoche Llora por la madrugada Lucero solito Brote del alba ¿Dónde iremos a parar Si se apaga Valderrama? ¿Dónde iremos a parar Si se apaga 